Welcome to the VoxGig Developer Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Roger. I speak to people in the software development community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. I'm the CEO of VoxGig, a software consultancy that builds DevRel tools. Because we believe in the power of community, we host a monthly virtual online meetup for everyone in developer relations. Check out devrelmeetup.com. And visit voxgig.com to view our work, use our tools, and sign up for our newsletter. Okay. Please sit back and enjoy my fireside chat with today's guest. Today, I'm talking to Cassandra Farris about nurturing and building your communities, and in particular, the importance of reaching out to community leaders early on. Cassandra is also a great example of how you don't need to be a coder to get started in developer relations. And her personal journey is a great example of how you can use developer relations to get into far more technical roles. Cassandra, hello, welcome. It's great to have you on the Fireside with Box Gig podcast talking about developer relations and community management and running events and all the sort of crazy stressful stuff that we do uh, for our audience. Uh, maybe I will let you introduce yourself and tell us what you do rather than trying to <laughs> make an inaccurate statement of it myself. Awesome. Thank you. I do a lot of things. Um... Professionally, I say focus on the human side of technology, but um, I am currently working at Caston by Veeam, and I am a community manager managing the Cube Campus Kubernetes learning platform. Um, actually, getting ready to switch into a new role where I'll be doing more product-based work, learning more Azure and Azure integrations with Veeam products. So excited to kind of make that transition. Um, I came into this weird community management world as a technical recruiter, though. Wow. Okay. Interesting entry. Yeah. 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 When I um, started in tech, cloud computing and agile were like the new hotness and I was recruiting and I didn't know what I was recruiting for. So I started going to meetups and user groups and just attending. Oh, okay. I wanted to know. Yeah. Simply because I wanted to learn. Um, Over time that evolved into me then being known as the recruiter who actually cared about the technology. So I started sitting on panels um, organizing conferences, speaking at conferences, and realized eventually that community, not hiring people, was my passion. So I really liked the aspects of recruiting where I got to know people. I got to know their stories. I got to know what they were looking for. I got to align them with their goals and coach their careers, but didn't. it was the growing the people in the community that was yeah. the rewarding part. So I made that transition to community management about six years ago now. Um, I've been actually at a conference at a speaker dinner for KCDC, and I was lamenting that I couldn't find a DevRel job because I'm not a programmer by trade. And I was like, nobody will hire me to be a developer advocate. And one of my good friends turns to me and he goes, have you considered community management? And I was uh, like, that's a job? Yeah, yeah. So that's how I got into this. And I started you know, switching and focusing on career as my full-time role. What's interesting about that is I've actually come across a few people who are in a similar situation where they don't have a coding background, but they kind of want to get into a technical role. And the pathway of doing DevRel jobs, I think, is very effective, right? Because you can you can sort of in you sort of in a role that, um, and I say this with an extreme amount of prejudice, anybody can do, which is community management and event management. Um, where you can do the job if you bring uh, attention to detail and energy and de- and diligence, right? Uh, and it's a super tough job, but it gives you enough exposure to technical organizations that you can then, you're in the right place at the right time, kind of, right? 
Um, you sound like one of the the you sound like one of the recruiters, the good recruiters, right? Because the recruiters have a bad rep, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I've met a few at meetups, and there's definitely, yeah, definitely the good recruiters pay attention to developer communities, right? Um, did you find when you were doing recruiting that it was more effective in terms of the outcomes for you placing people? That it sort of was, stuff? Yeah. Um, especially as I got into it for a few years and then started, you know, being a conference organizer and speaker. Um, it definitely added a lot of credibility to what I was doing. And it also helped me, like I very quickly learned not to make the mistake to, for instance, contact a Java programmer about a JavaScript role. Like, yeah, that's the classic. That's the classic. So like I learned pretty quickly what candidates I was reaching out to that the emails basically were targeted and accurate um, as far as kind of the technologies people were hiring for. But yeah, it just, it was, it purely came out of curiosity, but then it became, you know, between social media, I did almost all of my hiring um, through community events, through social media people that i just met so it was wound up paying off really well for a while got it awesome so then you you had this opportunity to work in community management right mm-hmm. you discovered that the, there was this role uh so what was that like starting from zero i guess and learning the whole learning on the job i guess um so i think i learned a lot of community management before i knew it was community management because i was right. handling um well, I worked for a software consulting company called Improving for a long time. And part of our model was to host user groups and meetups and support the community. Hmm. Um, I was the person who wound up being in charge of booking room for the user group, ordering the food, evaluating sponsorships, um, ordering swag, picking up you know sponsorships booths, doing all of that. And so by the time I moved into community management, when it came to the event stuff, I was like, I got this. Like, I know what to look for. I know what to consider. Um, so that part of it, I knew what I think I needed to learn was that my community management jobs have been different everywhere. For instance, I was previously managing, um, a community of contributors to an open source project and kind of that liaison between our open source and our enterprise, um, projects. Now I'm leading a community of people who are learning Kubernetes. So it just, it depends. Um, so for the open source role, it was a lot of being on streams, a lot of um, like editing wikis, a lot of kind of connecting pieces together. Uh, with, with Cube Campus, it's been a lot of planning in-person workshops and learning days. So it's, yeah, community management looks different everywhere you go. So, I mean, do you do do you use community management tools? Right. So there's different tools that let you kind of measure your community and check its health and that type of stuff. Or do you do it by feel? Or or what would you recommend? Um, I mean, initially it was definitely an Excel spreadsheet back before I was doing community management full time. Um, I don't know, this might not be a popular take, but I'm pretty tool agnostic. I think I've learned enough and I've worked enough different places that, um, like I can't remember the name of the big community engagement tools. I think Orbit and Common Room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I've done demos and like started with some of them, but what I have yet to see is a company that's taken the time to invest in one of those tools long enough to actually get results. Like they'll try it for six months and then be like, oh, nothing's working and cancel Hmm. it. Not understanding that that sort of initiative takes two years. So I haven't been able to use those tools as much as I would like. That's an interesting one, uh, which I want to zero in on, right? Because um, 
my own experience is that, yeah, two years is about the time, right? So if you, and I'm specifically thinking of the scenario of uh, dev tools startups, where part of the strategy is to start building community around your tool. Uh, but if you were then, you know, reporting back to investors on your board or whatever, six months later, well, <laughs> that chart is going to be like, it's going to flatline for the first 18 months, really. Communities require so much continuous dedication. Yeah. Um, so is it, so what's interesting about this is, is it, it's not the tool itself that's the problem really, right? It's just that the overall management investment in building the community wasn't sustained. I think it's partially that. I think it's partially also just um, sometimes there's a feeling like that tool is just another thing you have to manage, another set of data uh -huh. entry you have to do. And yeah, so there's yeah. that piece of it too. I wonder with um, all this AI stuff now, if that can be automated, the data entry is is a pain, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that doesn't really. Yeah, there's, there's, if you have to do a lot of that, there's not much gain out of it. I mean, just go back to spreadsheets because yeah. you're going to do yeah. it anyway, right? Well, and the hard thing about that, like to bring it to community, is that if your community manager is spending all of their time, um, you know, tracking metrics and tracking data and, um, you know, creating strategies and planning things, but not getting the chance to ex actually execute on those things. Um, that winds up being a challenge. Like the best communities I've built and grown have been the ones where you're, you know, you have a few big events a year, whether that's a sponsorship of a big conference or it's something you host yourself. And then throughout the year, you have the meetups, the user groups, um, you know, your Slack or your Discord or whatever, but you have other ways to connect with your community that aren't just those big in-person events. Um, I really like doing Twitch streams for that reason. When I was like doing Twitch streams for the, um, for the open source team, we did Twitch streams three days a week. And one day was like triage, one day was R&D, and one day was community kind of concerns and questions. And that was the one that I did. But so I how do you, so, so, okay, so I mean, I, I've thought about doing Twitch streams. And I, I've, I've seen a former colleague of mine, uh, a guy called Matteo Kalina, his startup is platformatic.com. And he does Twitch streams once a week. Um, I, I do a podcast, right? <laughs> I look at the Twitch and I'm like, oh my, uh, kind of nervous. Uh, so I mean, because you know, you don't want to, you don't want to turn up and there's like zero, zero viewers, yeah. right? Uh, so how, I mean, what's the what's the secret to Twitch or what's 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 your recommendation for? I want to launch a Twitch uh, um, stream. How should I go about it? So we did it a few different ways, and both ways were in two different ways, um, and in both of them, now I think about it. The one thing that they had in common is that um, with Twitch, the, you know, you need to be streaming regularly. Um, so on both of these, we streamed generally three days a week. Um, and one of, and each of those streams was a different topic. So one of the streams, um, like saying at the, at, the, at the startup, it was like um, triage R&D and then just kind of general issues and things coming up. Um, when I was working for a mortgage company, we were starting a DevRel team and our Twitch stream had um, one of my developer advocates was very good at front end and accessibility and he would do accessibility streams one day. Um, the other guy would do .NET, kind of cutting edge .NET stuff. So that would be his stream. And then my stream, I would bring people on to tell stories, kind of like what you and mm. I are doing. Um, so I think having a variety of topics at different times. The other thing is that there's 
perhaps unsurprisingly, there's a whole community of DevRels who are on Twitch and who stream. And a lot of times um, you invite each other to be on your streams and you, you know, retweet and share and post when your friend's streams are up. Like there's this kind of okay, okay. cross-promotional. Nobody's ever said like, that's the rule, but it seems like, hey, you know, you promote your friend's streams and they promote yours. Um, so don't just go on a freaking account and just start streaming, right? Get Participate a little bit first. Yeah. And know what you're streaming about. I think that's the other thing is to figure out what you're streaming about, figure out like, I keep everything really simple. I don't have, you know, a big fancy setup or anything. I just want my streams to feel like a conversation, but you want to kind of figure that stuff out ahead of time too. Uh, okay. So just, just winding it back a little bit, because which is just one aspect of building a community. Do you have a template for community building? Like if you were hired by a high growth startup tomorrow, okay. <laughs> And they're like, oh, we have no community. Let's and let's just stick with the dev tools theme, right? It's it's something like Kubernetes, right? Or whatever. Um do you have a at this stage kind of a way that you do things? What would you start I, with? I do. I have a process. It takes um six months to see any results. It's gonna take, like you were saying, a couple years. Um but the first thing to do is to find out like if if there's an established community, which the community I'm managing now was like established, but not really engaged, like people are in the mm. Slack, but not talking. And we've been working on some of that. Um, but the first thing that I did, the first thing you do is you identify every community has their champions. Everybody has their, their, these are the people who maybe they're power users of the dev tool. Maybe they used to work for the company, whatever, but those are the people you need to find first. Um, because those are the people who can eventually become your advocates and your community leaders. And you need to get to know them. Um, I have done, especially starting like with a new job, what I'll do is I'll actually schedule, you know, 15, 30 minute meetings with some of my key leaders, um, or at least try to engage them on DM just to find out what's happening within the community as a place to start. Um, The hard, one of the hard things to figure out, I think, is to figure out where to start with the community. Um, especially with like so many options. Um, and you don't want, I know a lot of companies want their own forum or want their wherever, but I think it's harder to get people to migrate to a new platform than to meet them where they are. So the majority of my users are in Slack. So Slack is my primary community I use. Um, I'm a big fan of doing community surveys as well early on to find out what a community wants. Um, but then as far as growing communities, it's developer communities are driven by learning. So that's why um, meetups, videos, podcasts, any of that sort of stuff is is what will get developers' attention and get developers drawn in. And then um, from there, you start to pick up trends of what a community wants and decide which the community wants 100 things. And you start to decide um, which are the most commonly requested things that are viable for you to implement. And you start focusing on implementing those. So... But yeah, sit back and yeah. listen at first and just get to know your key people. And then they'll tell you kind of where to direct it. Yeah, as opposed to, you know, here's, here's a list of 10 things to do one by one. It's, it's actually the general thing is just sit back and listen. Um, what mistakes have you made over the years setting up communities? Like, where did it, when did it go horribly wrong? Or <laughs> did you manage to alienate half of a community or something like that? <laughs> um. Uh, trying to think i've never managed to alienate a community um 
Because I, I mean, the reason I ask is people have, I mean, I have seen people make mistakes, right? Um, Honestly, one of the biggest mistakes I've made um, is I come from a world where being in startups and consulting and consulting startups, which is where the first eight or nine years of my career were, um, you're used to doing everything yourself. So like yeah. I said, you're the person who's finding, doing everything from finding the conference to sponsor, to writing the check, to setting up the booth, to working at the booth. Um, and I got so used to that, like, hey, I'm doing, you know, I know what to do. I know what my routine is. I have to do all of the things for this event. Um, when I went to larger companies, when I went to, you know, um, worked for a big tech company, I worked for a big mortgage company. There was definitely some culture shock at first because I couldn't just, for instance, tweet out on social media that we were sponsoring a conference. I had to go through the communications team. And so at first I got, and then sometimes I do still get like frustrated about, you know, this has to go through procurement and this has to go through communications and this has to go through legal. And I understand why that's all stuff. Um, the flip side is I've realized that if I don't feel like I have to do everything on my plate, things actually do like, Take advantage of the fact that there are people at the company whose job is to make sure that the tweet is, you know, properly on brand or is to make sure that, you know, the sponsorship invoice is paid on time. But it was a mistake that I made for a long, long time that I'd like still tried to do everything myself rather than saying there's a department that yeah. does this thing. So like working yeah. with the other teams um, and then, I mean, just learning to learning who the right people are to talk to. But that was, I think, one of my big mistakes. Um, you get used to it, don't you? I mean, especially in, yeah. in startups where it's it's all on you, right? You've got a, everything from ordering the pizza to mm -hmm. stacking the chairs at the end, right? Uh, yeah. It, and chasing yeah, the this, invoices. <laughs> yep. This event I just set up for KubeCon a few weeks back. That was feeling a lot like like startup style because I was yeah. really the only one on the setup for this 150-person, eight-hour Kubernetes learning workshop with a panel and a coding contest and all oh, my this goodness. stuff. I, I hope you took a holiday yeah. afterwards. <laughs> I actually did. I actually did. Yeah. I went and spoke at the Build Stuff Conference in Lithuania and then went to Istanbul and just relaxed for a oh, few wow. days. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Uh, did you get caught in that heat wave earlier this year? I, or was that was that afterwards? There was a... Uh, oh, that was in August. Yeah, there's a really bad heat wave in Europe in August. Um, no, I wasn't. I was in Berlin at the end of July and then I was home all of August. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you so missed I it. But, and it was hot back in May. Yeah, in May I was in Athens, and it was really, really warm oh, yeah. even in early May. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, one thing, one thing that that can happen to people as well is when you get really involved in the stuff, and you're doing a lot of travel, and you're setting up events, and you're setting them up in cities you haven't been to. Um, super easy to get burnt out. That's why I was asking you, did you take a holiday, right? Because what you were just describing that sounded like a fairly full-on conference, right? That's not just a meetup, but yeah, it was a uh, single track one day conference, basically. But that's still a that's still a lot of work. Yeah, right? that's still a lot of work. Um, people underestimate the effect that running lots of events can have on you, right? Mm -hmm. You can get yeah. you can get burnt out super easy. Yeah, you can get burnt out. The hours and the travel. Um, sometimes I think that one of the things that burns me out the most is kind of the administrative back end stuff of that too, like scheduling that all of those things um it just gets to be a lot because you like come back from the conference and you need to like do all the reporting post-conference but then you need to be planning for the next thing and it yeah if you don't take breaks it is easy to get burnout for sure and i'm a um, big advocate for mental health and tech and for taking care of ourselves and so i 
I've gotten pretty good at sensing when I'm approaching burnout and stopping that. Yeah. Um, but that's taken years of, you know, journaling and just thinking and paying attention to kind of patterns and stuff. And so there's times when I'm like, oh, I know I'm headed for burnout. And I knew that after that event in November, because it was the third of four events within a four month span across three continents, I knew I was, it would be getting to be a lot. Yeah. So a lot. I lot. knew like take a break. Um, when I can, I do like to kind of take a day after or before an event to kind of explore and decompress. That happens sometimes, sometimes it doesn't, but, but I think yeah, it's you need it. You need it. You sure do. Um, and you have to ask for help in your organization, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think some people don't do that, do enough of that. Uh, the event represents the organization, so everybody should contribute. Yeah. Well, that's something I noticed too. So working with um, companies that are international versus national, the attitude toward PTO and stuff is completely different. Like Americans were very programmed to like work, 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 work. And my European friends are like, you need to like take vacations. And I do. I know it's important yeah, to take yeah. time off work. I know it's important to travel, but there's this like pressure to like work even when you're um, traveling. So I have really actually appreciated my team at work. Everybody's really good about like, we'll set her out of office and it'll be like, hey, I'm on vacation. This is my backup. I'll respond when I get home. And that's yeah. a perfectly okay thing to do. Um, but I haven't seen that everywhere I've been. So it's nice to have that, you know. Yeah, it's... Fully uh... Yeah, it's 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 really important. I mean, obviously, I'm speaking from the European end of things, uh, yeah. but a lot of my clients over the years have been US and Canada, so I kind of get the vibe. Um, <laughs> after having made the mistake myself of working many, many weekends uh, about 10 years ago, I made the decision that that was not going to happen. But then, especially if you're a leader, it's easy for people to do it anyway because they feel they need to do it professionally. Um, so one of the things I found was important in, in organizations was never to trigger that by, if you think of like a work thing on a Saturday morning and you just send a quick email or a quick Slack message, but that's on a Saturday morning, you can make, you, you can end up triggering people to work, right? Because yeah. they get, they get the notification. So one of the things I, I like to encourage is at a leadership level, it's radio silence all weekend, right? Unless it's, <laughs> unless the office is literally burning down. Yeah. I mean, there's exceptions, uh, of course, but... Of course, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think oh. I, I think that's important for organizations in general, right? It, it, it doesn't happen unless it comes from the top. Yeah. And I think it gets really hard in DevRel and before when I was a recruiter in particular, because there's so much blurry lines between work and fun. Like, mm. I speak at a conference in Athens and I stay an extra day and go tour the Parthenon with 10 other DevRels. Is that work or is that fun? Right? Like, cause it's, you're still doing stuff with work people. And so, yeah, it gets, it gets to be these really, really blurry lines. Um, I am a huge soccer fan. Um, and I like to host pregame parties um, in the parking lot of the stadium before our games. And several years ago I met, a group of people who were both into my local team, the Columbus crew and into tech. And we founded a geek tailgate party. And like, ah, okay. and so I was like, I would be yeah. in the parking lot of the stadium, drinking a beer and talking about, you know, you know how to do an agile stand up best on a remote team or something like that. Like, was, <laughs> so we called ourselves the geak tailgate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it working? Yeah. Yeah. It is but dangerous. Like, it's, it is yeah. dangerous to mix it too much. Right. Uh, yeah. 
That's what the flag is. That's what the flag, the flag is blurred. That's what it is. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Yeah. We uh, are in the, actually we are in the championship playoff on Friday or Saturday. Oh, exciting. So if we do this, we win the league MLS cup. So yeah. Fantastic. Um, Uh, Good luck. Good luck. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's an interesting one to balance. Uh, it's an interesting one to balance. I found when I was when I was doing more of that role, uh, the continuous travel. It's the reason I had to step out of doing it directly. The continuous travel really wears you down after a while. Um, like I, I don't know. Do you have any tips for dealing with that, or did you find that as well that eventually it was just too um, much? I have to. If I my favorite tip is to do it the cadence that you want that you is best for you, but it doesn't always work out. Like. Yeah. I was lucky there for a while. It was about every four weeks I was going on a trip. And so by the time I was like antsy to go somewhere, it was time to go. Um, But I wasn't completely gone. I think that you, I think that you to some extent have to like travel. You have to like, you know, be able to sleep in hotels and be okay by yourself because it it can be lonely. Um, A lot of my tips are like practical little tricks I've found to make the travel less bad. Like, um, Motion, I actually want to write a blog post about this, but like these motion sickness patches you put behind your ear, um, a jet lag supplement that I found that works wonder. So just like little travel, I, I don't know, I travel yeah. with a travel humidifier and like compression yeah. socks, like things that you do so that when you are on the plane overnight and then you wake up and have to be in a meeting at eight in the morning, you, you know, after you've you're, landed you're at six or whatever. Right. Compression yeah. socks. Oh, the compression socks are great. Yeah, I, I eventually figured yep. out that as well. They're so important, right? They do. Especially for long haul, right? Yeah. Or like the, I was getting like a lot of sinus, like not sick, but my sinuses would be Mm. a mess. And I was like, oh, I'll buy um, a little humidifier because hotel air is so dry. So I have this little humidifier you pour a bottle of water in and then it keeps the hotel air. And that sounds like total diva, but I don't care. It makes me able to keep my voice and able to talk. So Yeah. Wow. Okay. That would have been handy back in the day to think of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know what you mean, right? you get really dry, right? Yeah, uh, that, and then I guess like social media, just to stay in touch. Like when I travel, um, I'll be really active on my Instagram stories, partially just so my mom doesn't worry about me, um, but partially so yeah. I can remember what I'm up to, or remember where I'm going, or kind of feel connected with my world back home. Um, but I'm really lucky in that when I'm out at events, I also have a whole community there and friends that I maybe only see a few times a year, but. Um, so yeah, that is that is one that, side. That helps yeah. with burnout. Too, yeah, there, that is one side, right? You do you do develop these weird international friendships, right? That are mm-hmm. um, you do see you do tend to see the same people at various yep. events, uh, and yeah, we all complain about the same stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> it's always the same. One of my friends and I have made a speaker bingo, like a speaker oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, dinner yeah, bingo yeah. card that we keep saying we're going to bring out at one of the conferences. Yeah. But yeah, it's... oh, you should, you should for sure. Uh, I think we are going to wrap up. Um, thank you so much, Cassandra. Super insightful. And I think that the number one thing out of this is, yeah, the compression socks. That's the big tip. <laughs> <You're traveling. laughs> so nerdy. <laughs> it took me so many years to figure that one out. Yeah, uh, I took a broken no. foot. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it just, it, it, it's hard to understate how effective they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really is. Um and yeah, good luck with uh, the new direction as well. That sounds thank exciting. You. Awesome yeah. stuff. Sandra, thank you so much. All right. Thank you.
You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on the podcast section of our website, voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe to the VoxGeek Developer Relations Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any podcasting platform. We publish each Tuesday and Thursday. You can also access the archive of our meetup talks on the VoxGeek YouTube channel or the VoxGeek website. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.